Welcome to On Call with Dr. Dave. Today we have two very special guests, and that's a first for us. We're interviewing two different doctors at the same time. And these doctors actually have their own podcast called Docs Outside the Box. We are interviewing Dr. Nee and Dr. Renee. Dr. Nee is a trauma surgeon, and Dr. Renee is an ob guy. Nice to meet you both. Hi. 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 I'm Ashley. I'm Dave's wife, and I got roped into doing this somehow. <laughs> hey, Ashley, how are you? Hi. <laughs> so she was she was so involved anyway that I'm like, why are you behind the screen? Why aren't you on on with me? Because she would be editing things. She'd be giving me ideas. She'd be talking about a lot of different things. Then I thought, why don't you just come on? I'm like, just opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Well, we, we talk to a lot of people too. We, we talk about the stories in medicine. So that's our focus is the, are the stories that people have, those patient encounters, those moments of medicine that changes. So that's the focus of our podcast. And people go into lingo. They go into, oh yeah, this person had a STEMI. And it's- I'm like, what? What's that? <laughs> yeah. Who's, so, who? So, what? so she's our person that gets to say, that. what is that? Like, hold up a little bit. Explain that. I keep people honest over here for the right. dogs in the room. <laughs> well, she, Did you see the look she gave you? <laughs> she has that honorary, she was with me. I I would talk at her when I was studying. I heard, I heard you guys did a little study group. I listened to the podcast where you're talking about how you got together and your relationship. And so yeah. like, <laughs> look at his face, look at his face. <laughs> she plotted and schemed. Oh, please. <laughs> and finally she locked me down. Oh, yeah. please. <laughs> so she went, I was, we didn't study together because she didn't care, but I would just talk at her. I would just be like, oh, did you know this? And did you hear this? And so I just needed to say it to just lock in my mind. And so she had listened to me say a lot of stuff. I don't know what she retained or if she just let it go one in her ear out the other. She let it take the USMLE. <laughs> just see? See how well I do? Yeah, see, I got, see a, I got a four-year degree in. <laughs> right. Well, right. We had our first kid during medical school, so he's just like, I'm rocking him in the in the bouncy chair, oh, wow. and I would just be telling him, like, hey, guess what? Gonorrhea <laughs> is treated with, like, a penicillin, and if you're penicillin allergic you desensitize because it's still the best option for you. <laughs> it's actually syphilis. You got oh. that question wrong, Dr. Dave. <laughs> well, I I don't do a lot of that stuff anymore. I He's am... from the neck up now, nowadays. <laughs> that was during his neck down days. If, if anybody looks down, once somebody says, I have a, and they look down, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's it. <laughs> well, you had me going because I, I I told I was like, oh yeah, really? Okay, yeah. Well, I'm the OBGYN in the room, so I better know the answer to yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> those were those are the interesting situations in the ER where I'd have a couple in the room and one of them's all of a sudden like, Well, that's gonorrhea and I'd be like, um, <laughs> do you know about this? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I always loved the OB stories were always fun. Like yeah. the pregnant teenagers that were virgins. And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, you're pregnant. And then they can't remember which guy it is. And their mom's freaking <laughs> out. And she's trying to think who the dad could be. I'm like, you were a virgin five minutes ago. And now you don't know who the dad might be. Like, my name is Mary. <laughs> so I don't do any of that crazy stuff anymore. I mean, I still do take trauma call. So I still get a lot of mm. like stabs and gunshots and 
bar fights and all that, but yeah. I don't, uh, luckily not a lot of transmissible diseases in my career. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to a couple of podcasts. I'm like, I got a friend crush on these people. I want to be their friend. <laughs> Let's see if we can get them on this podcast with us. Yeah, that's, that is, that is the, um, that's the goal actually, is that we want people to kind of feel like they're our friends and they're kind of listening in. Yeah, that's his goal. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I feel when I listen to other people's podcasts is I feel like I get to, I get a window into their life mm-hmm. and, you know, depending on how conversational they are, you know, you kind of feel like they're like your virtual friends, you know, and mm-hmm. I like that, you yeah. know, and, you know, especially when I first started listening to podcasts early on, you know, you feel like you have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, like, I, I definitely get what you're saying. And uh, <laughs> when we were living in central Pennsylvania, that was what? you know, three years ago, three years ago, ago. it's, it's a very isolated area, you know, and, um, we just would listen to a ton of podcasts. The ones that I would really like are the podcasts where it was very conversational, (laughs) but yeah, that's the whole point I think is, you know, with podcasting, you spend sometimes 30 minutes to 45 minutes per episode, just listening to people. Yeah. Yeah. For us, it's sometimes even couples therapy. (laughs) (laughs) was hearing that you have, you know, you've done a book and you're doing teaching and Mm -hmm. I think like med school prep or something like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've always had a creative outlet. Like during medical school, I wrote like, I've started writing a fantasy book and now I design cakes on the side or like I need something Mm -hmm. artistic to make myself happy. During, during undergrad, I was doing a, you know, the biology degree that everybody did. And I just got sick of studying amoeba and the Krebs cycle. And it just was so mind numbingly boring to me. So I got a degree in German literature. And so it's like, I just always need something creative. So for me, I started this just to have a creative outlet. Now that's not the whole, I mean, obviously because we're not evolved yet, the whole reason we wanted to have you guys on is because I do want to hear your stories. I want to hear about, you know, like the crazy patient story or when you were locum, we've never talked to somebody that locum mm-hmm. just showing up in a situation be like, Hey, here are patients, like take care of them. You're just like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Got plenty of those. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you think about like those big moments, those big stories from your career, like what are the ones that you end up at a party? You're just sitting there talking to your friends. They find out what you do for your career, what you do for your job. Like what's the story that you go to when somebody is just, new at a party you're trying to entertain somebody and you're trying to get like the laugh or the oh my gosh reaction from people what's the story you go to uh, why don't you go first me yeah you go first. <laughs> oh my gosh the laugh hmm well let's see well if i had to think it actually doesn't have to do with a patient it has to do with a colleague of mine who when she first started residency she was a first year and maybe i was uh uh maybe i was like a third year third or fourth year and she goes she's on labor and delivery because the first year is always on labor and delivery and this woman you know starts laboring really hard really fast and she gets into the room and she sees the patient and the patient is like literally screaming, pushing, just, and she's the only person in the room. So she runs out of the room and she goes, I need a doctor. And the nurse goes, <laughs> you are the doctor. 
<laughs> like, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> now get in there and deliver that baby. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So the antics of a first year resident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's that moment at each level where you're the med student, but you're supposed to know something, and then you're the resident, and then you're the senior resident, and then you're like I did a fellowship, so then I'm a fellow. But then there's that moment when you're done with your training and it's just you and you're in the OR. There's nobody to look to. There's nobody to talk to. You're just there. And it's, it's, it's scary sometimes. Well, that first time they give you a piece of paper after you've had a kid in the hospital and like you (laughs) with that line that says mother and that's you, that freaked me out more than having the baby. I think that that was the moment. I gotta take the baby home now. Oh man, that's me. I'm mom. Yeah. I'm mom. I'm doctor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just watched how to put this car seat in on YouTube. So. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you read the stat that 80% of people have the car seat in wrong or buckled wrong and then straps in the wrong spot. And you <sighs> think, well, I don't want to deceive myself. think I'm really smart and I'm not one of the 80%. 80% is pretty high. So then you look right. at the video and the picture again. And you're like, that looks right. I don't, I think that. I don't, I don't, know. I don't want my baby to die because I'm a moron. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And how many kids do you have? We two. have two kids. Okay. Yeah, we have two as well. Mm-hmm. Two boys. We had a 10-year-old and 14-year-old. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We got two boys, three and five. Yeah. Three and five. Those are yeah. such fun ages. Oh, I miss, yeah. miss the days. I mean, they're all fun. Like, I'm not one of those parents who are like, oh, watch out for this age or careful about this. It's They're fun. They're, they're learning. They're doing different things. It's just, it's exciting. I love them all. But yeah. my youngest son ages three and four, just the perfect level of intelligence, but just no filter and just his ability to express himself, but with no, like just with complete nonsense. I loved it so much. (laughs) I just miss those days where it's like, let's, let's keep him happy and alive. I like those days. Those are, that's my parenting wheelhouse. (laughs) This like 14 year old teaching them, like enriching their lives, making them become adults. I'm constantly out of my league, but that like, Keep them alive and happy. Yep. Easy. Yep. I can do that for sure. Easy. Yeah. Fun. Now, what about you, Nee? Any any specific stories you can think of? I mean, they don't have to be funny. They could be something just touching or Surprising. just a moment that kind of changed the way you thought about something. Well, my stories, you know, just in ver- by what I do. I'm a trauma surgeon. Most of the time, I'm the Debbie Downer of things. So... <laughs> There's two stories that sometimes I'll tell. One is, um, I had an attempt, I was thinking about it. Wait, one is, this one was on national TV about 10 years ago. This was the one in, when I was in Miami where the police officer or somebody was either looking out their window or looking around and they saw like somebody like biting off the face of someone. Oh, the bath, oh. the bath salts one. Yeah, the quote unquote yeah. bath salts oh, one. Man. Yeah, I was there that day uh, for that one, um, and you know, uh, it was just I just remember the patient coming in, and there was just you know, there's this anticipation that this guy has gotten a portion of his face like bitten and so forth. And, you know, there was a thought process that maybe we would be getting the person who actually was the one who was biting, um, but he died at the scene, I think. 
But the thing that I remember the most was there were so many people who were not related to the case there, either taking pictures and so forth. Yeah. And somehow someone was able to get some pictures of the patient, unfortunately, that got through, you know, social media. This is like 2011, 2012. So that most of that, it was either Facebook or what have you. But mm -hmm. I just remember there was like a huge purge. The hospital was like confiscating people's phones who they thought were there during that time who wasn't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. um, that was crazy. Um, just to kind of be around that whole experience or notion that someone would get their entire face bitten off. And the way how I had it described to me was, you know, like almost take an eraser and basically erase this portion, you oh. know, their eyes, their nose, and kind of just like oh. their, Ugh. from, you know, their, their mouth downwards, it's what you can see. Um, but I, I didn't get a chance to really see that, um, but I was there for that. So that was crazy. And then, you know, the I invariably because of what I do, even with surgery, general surgery, you know, I see the the things that people stick up in places that they can't get back out, you know. And the worst thing I saw was a candle that was about this long. Oh, that's way too long. Yeah. So, oh, so for people who are listening, we're talking about... I'd say the size of a 12 inch ruler, you know, yeah, that's even longer. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> this guy came in after, you know, about a day and a half of abdominal pain, which is the worst thing you can do after he couldn't find it. You know, usually, you know, if it gets stuck up there, you know, you want to go into the hospital ASAP to see if they can find it. But he was like, ah, this too, this will pass. That's what his thoughts were. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and after and a day and a half, your face right now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> after a day and a half i mean he was really really sick so i just remember this is when i was in training my you know one of the professors who was taking me through the course or through the surgery we made an incision and there was just abdominal like literally like poop as soon as we made the incision through his skin and into his abdomen we didn't have to search anywhere it was just poop and then all of a sudden you just pull out the you know, this candle. And it was just like, wow. And you just get surprised at how this small little thing can cause so much damage. Um, we ended up having to give the person a colostomy and so forth. But um, those are the things that I oftentimes get asked about or I talk about, which is, you know, what's the worst thing you had to pull out of someone? And, and then I'll invariably say, hey, like I was there in Miami when that occurred. We've, you know, since, but in between there, I have like a bunch of traumatic things that, but it's nothing that, they're all Debbie Downer type things, unfortunately. <laughs> Everybody yeah. wants to hear from Renee. Yeah, we're literally <laughs> life and death. Yeah, nobody yeah. wants to hear my kind yeah. of stories. We're literally yeah. life and death. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't envy what, what he does at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, like I said, I don't like looking below the neck on people. Like I love <laughs> doing facial surgery. Everything, most of the time it's clean. Every once in a while there's some facial abscess or something like that. But most of what I do is clean and slick and controlled. Even the trauma stuff, it's it's bone. The worst case thing for me, like I don't have people that die very often, but there's loss of eyes or, you know, things like that where the patients are blind. So those are my Debbie Downer stories where, you know, life is going fine. Then all of a sudden person loses one eye or both eyes. Mm -hmm. And so th those are my Debbie Downer stories. But it's, you know, I've kept track over the years of the different ways people have lost their eyes. And weed whackers, oh, weed whackers are the worst. So like those weed trimmers, 
just spinning things, high velocity, rocks, debris. Those things are just the very worst. Don't let your kids be outside. Yeah. yeah. Lawn mowers are usually safe unless somebody else is in the yard with you. Then it can sometimes get people. And I was surprised by how many people shoot their eyes out with BB guns. So, you know, you watch that Christmas story movie as a kid and the mom's like, you'll shoot your eye out. And at least six or seven people in my career have lost their eyes due to BB guns. And it's just like, I didn't even think people had BB guns anymore. I'm like, who, who has a BB gun? I don't know. But I had one mom that was just getting an old BB gun out from her son's closet after he moved out. You know, he's like 30 years old. It's been in the closet for 20 years and it would still have pressure. And she hit the trigger and then lost her eye. Oh, so those, my those, are, those are my Debbie Downer stories where it's just like, I'm getting called. I'm just like on trauma call. Then it's like, hey, we call it an open globe. You know, the eyeball is now open to the world. And it's just like, you know, people that have been shot and about to die, they get precedent. You know, the trauma surgeons usually, you know, they're the big guys on campus, big gals on campus. You know, they save people's lives. But I get a bump of them every once in a while when I have an open globe. I'm like, sorry, level one here, walking through, saving an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on through, man. Here's your police uh, escort. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But I, I have so many of those stories that I, I just never share them all because nobody would want to listen to them. Maybe I'll do an episode one time where I just like, here it is. Listen at your own discretion. Here are all my eyeball stories. And we'll just get them all out of the way in one episode. You can skip it, and then I won't ever talk about them again. <laughs> but you know what, though, it's funny that we we you know we talk about that because you know who would have thought that like uh, what is it, Doctor Pimple Popper? Right. Like, oh, yeah. Would be interested in that, right? No, it's like, so satisfying. It right. Is. Oh my god, I can't stand it because I bring home. I do cancer reconstructions, and I take somebody with this like massive cancer excision. I do this beautiful reconstruction. And she won't look at the photos because it's gross. Well, the before mm-hmm. ones are gross. And then, she, but she'll watch Doctor Pimple Popper. I think. Oh, so- what are you talking about? Gross. You like that's that's disgusting. What I do is beautiful. <laughs> what Doctor Pimple Popper so does is gross. To be fair, she is also board certified plastics. They their her before and afters are quite pretty as yeah. well. But it is really satisfying when she gets yeah. the whole sack out. I mean, come on. Nice. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I never take videos of that at all. I take out facial abscesses and cysts all the time, shalazians, all that gross stuff. You're never going to see that on my social media ever. I, I don't want it out there. That's not the image I'm going for. <laughs> I'll do it if you need it, but that's that's not what I want. Not be your brand. For. Yeah, that's not my brand. Exactly. <laughs> his so, his it, brand it, is before and after. I like rough roll prasties, wear your safety glasses, and cake. Yeah, that's, that's my what brand. his feed looks like. <laughs> Yeah, it's just you never know what's gonna pop off, you know. So yeah. no pun intended. <laughs> Even I'm sure isn't there someone on TV who does? Uh, I mean, I've seen all over YouTube. People are really interested in uh, uh, the foot surgeons who like take out like ingrown. Oh, that's satisfying. Have you seen those videos? I have. I don't. I haven't gotten into that. I don't dare say that I will. I don't believe. Yeah, nails. Nails creep me out. That creeps me out. To me, that's just as foreign as the dark web. You know, those those search terms are not going in. I don't want to see it. It's- but you, you may, you probably like, well, how's that end up on your algorithm, knee? Like, I don't know why it's up on my on my algorithm, but it's it's just there. I'm not telling you what I'm watching. Just the, just the gateway video to all the other ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like the ingrown hairs. Oh, I love the ingrown hairs. I'm like, how long is it gonna be? <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. That's one that was really long. Yeah. 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 So satisfying. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it's very satisfying to me because in my line of work, I'm always pulling something out of someone, right? That's true. true. <laughs> Here's your baby. <laughs> very true. Yeah. It's, so, it's, the, it's the same basic idea. You know, like you're delivering something. I've used that joke on patients before when I've had a huge cyst and that's like, I kind of like make a small incision. I have to deliver it out of that small little incision, but uh, yep. the babies are much cuter than what I'm pulling out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very true. But I'm glad there are people that don't mind because we need people that don't mind that stuff. Yeah. I, I was in med school with a colorectal surgeon surgeon. He was wrist deep in the anus. I mean, he was doing these like anal fissures and all these like other things down there. And he's wrist deep in this guy's anus. And he asked me what I'm planning to do with my career. And I told him, you know, ophthalmology to get into oculoplastic surgery. And he said, just looked at me, still hands in there and says, "Ooh, the eyeballs are gross. <laughs> <laughs> like okay, like, right, yeah. I think what you're doing right now is really gross it's too. Really gross yeah. too. Yeah, I'm glad mm -hmm. you don't think it's gross because we need people that will go go in there. <laughs> yeah, it's not me. somebody's got to look. Yeah, somebody's got to look. It's an it's an important body part. We need doctors that do that. We need doctors that will take out those rectal foreign bodies for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Luck luckily, not a lot of things are getting shoved into the eye sockets or you know like the things that I work on. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> prison. Now, what made you want to go into trauma surgery and what made you want to go into OB? Like what, what was that moment where you just said, this is what I want to do? So I had an experience when I was 17 with a trauma surgeon. My, I was at this summer program for the college that I was going to, they had a little pre-matriculation program. So if you went there, you know, several weeks in advance, you can get acclimated to the campus. You can, you know, make some friends and then you can get some easy college credits. So I did that. And at the end, they had like a barbecue. And at the barbecue, there were alumni of the program or alumni of, of the school. And at, the, at this program, one of the alumni was a trauma surgeon who worked at a hospital that was like 10, 15 minutes bus ride from where I lived. So I remember running to him. And I said, hey, Dr. Jordan, uh, Dr. Garrison, listen, like I, I, you know, I know I'm only 17, but, you know, I really want to be a doctor. Is there any way that I can shadow you? And he said, yeah, you can shadow me. And, you know, he gave me his card and I called him back. And like this is like a week later, but like two weeks before actual school started, he let me follow him. And I just remember like him and my parents like talked for like a quick second. He said, yeah, come back around like 11 o'clock, come pick him up and go from there. And then as we're walking towards the, this is in the driver's, or excuse me, in the parking lot, as we're walking back towards the ED, like his pager goes off and someone is coming in who got injured. So he says, just sit in a corner and just watch what I do. And patient came in, this guy's like in his early twenties. And like, there's all these people who are either nurses, doctors, or whoever they were. I didn't even know who they were. They all had like yellow coats or yellow gowns. And he's at the bottom of the bed and he's telling people, do this, do that, do this. And I just remember they turned the patient over and I can see like this circular thing on his back, which is the gunshot wound and just blood dripping from there. And he's like screaming, he's in pain. And, you know, after a couple of minutes, you know, Dr. Garrison says, look, we're done. We're going to go upstairs. And he takes him to the operating room. I literally could not go to the OR. So I'm talking with the residents who didn't go to the OR and I'm talking to nurses. And after a couple of hours, I'm like, look, like 
how much longer is this guy going to be there? And they're like, yeah, I think he's out. Like, let's go find him. And, you know, he was talking to the to the mother of this patient. And I can kind of hear what he was saying. And basically was saying that she the patient's going to be OK. And the mom was crying and he's giving her a hug and all that. And I knew at that moment, I was like, that's what I really want to do. Right. I don't know the specifics, but mm-hmm. I just know that is what I really want to do. And fast forward several years, I'm in med school. You know, I really decided that I was going to give myself an equal chance to like all specialties. Um, But when I did general surgery, I just kind of knew, like when I was in the operating room, I kind of just felt like this is where I was supposed to be at. So I knew general surgery or some type of surgical um, field was for me. And then when I did general surgery residency, so this is when I am actually training in general surgery. You know, the people, like you said, the people who walk around the hospital who are making all the decisions and are able to stop everybody else from operating because they have to go to the operating room first or, you know, get all the really bad cases or the people who can operate out of anything were the trauma surgeons. Um, So that's when I decided like that lifestyle really was for me, where something happens, you get called to the ED, something is coming in by an ambulance. You're not sure exactly what it is but you kind of are ready to kind of handle anything and it's algorithm based. That's my life. Like that's I'm the same way when <laughs> a, then do B, then do C, then do D, you know, don't stop. Just keep going. Like that type of uh, thinking works for me the best. Um, and that's why trauma surgery for me, that's why I'm a trauma surgeon now. It just fits me the best. Yeah. It's interesting that you said that it wasn't the moment you were in the trauma bay for the first time that made you think you wanted to do that. Is that moment when you saw the surgeon interact with the family? Yeah. 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 So that, that, that is interesting. Cause when you're telling that story, I'm like, that's when you said you wanted to be that surgeon. It was that interaction and I don't know if it's because he saved the life or just the way that surgeon interacted with the parent or just the impact you saw it made on that family. But I, I don't know if you've ever thought about if that was the real moment with that interaction or if it was just all of it combined. Yeah. So the, him with the mother is what sealed the deal, right? Him being at the bed, I was like, for me, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It just, it, it looked like chaos to me, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, he takes someone to the OR. I don't know what's going on there, but when he comes back and he's with the mom, that like literally like cherry on top was something that I was like, okay, like he can do X, Y, and Z down there. And then he still has enough time and enough compassion to talk to the mom. That's kind of this, the, the type of doctor that I want to be. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, not much has changed from what he does to what I do. Um, uh, he just sees, he saw a lot more penetrating trauma than what I do. I do a lot more, you know, blunt trauma and so forth. But um, there is a lot of um, family interaction with what I do because nobody really wakes up and wants to see me or intends to see me. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the most part, for everybody else, there's a plan, you know, there is a referral, there is something where they know I'm going to go see an OB. I'm going to go see even you. I'm going to go see my PCP. I'm going to go see a dentist. But nobody wakes up thinking, I need to go see a trauma surgeon, right? Like, <laughs> unless they need to see the psych ward, right, afterwards. <laughs> so it's it's kind of one of those things where you really have to um, develop a an ability to to take care of people when they're at their when they're about to die, but also mm-hmm. at the same time kind of counsel them through that process and even the family. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I'm always grateful for the trauma surgeons because when I was in medical school, I didn't like being in the hospital, taking care of inpatients. It just never really worked for me. And now I get a waltz in when they call me in to take care of somebody. I know there are people that are taking care of that person, keeping that person alive, taking care of every need that they have. And I get to kind of waltz in. Everybody loves me. I come in, I fix whatever's <laughs> there. I plate their fractures or I like sew something up, talk with the family. We make a couple jokes. I'm like, yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks when you're out of the hospital, you know, we'll fix things up. And then I waltz out and I, yeah, I like that guy. <laughs> but I know I only get to do that because the trauma surgeons are there and they're taking care of that person and they're keeping them alive. And I'm just kind of in and out and I get to do my thing. And it's the trauma surgeons that are really doing all the heavy lifting for these people. And yet they love me so much because it's just like their scar looks a little nicer or, you know, it's just. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, it's a big deal because it's, you know, it's a team. And <clears throat> as you already know, like, you know, we're a jack of all trades, but master of none. And they're just things that, you know, happen all here that, you know, we just kind of have to defer to you and stuff. And you know, like we can take care of a normal laceration and so forth, but there's some lacerations that I'm like, yo, we got to get you involved. Or if there's something that's, you know, really like, for example, like I had this guy, he was drinking. This is recently he was drinking, fell off his motorcycle and had this really nasty laceration, right? Like, mm -hmm. right. Like, you know, right, right in the inner portion of your ear, like right where that yeah. notch is on your ear. And I couldn't quite get the sutures in the right place, but there was cartilage that was exposed and he was intubated and everything. And I gave it a good try, but I couldn't get it covered. So I knew that, you know, he had an increased chance of infection. So I ended up calling, you know, uh, an ENT surgeon to come in. He said, look, just put some, you know, ointment over it. I'll see it in the morning. But then, you know, he takes him to the OR, does some flaps. And I'm like, makes it look great and everything, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, wow, like I spent like literally 30, 40 minutes, like butchering this guy's ear at first, you know, and, uh, thank goodness this guy came in, but that's just kind of our lifestyle. You know, it's just, we work as a team, you know, obviously you're there, you know, mm -hmm. to help us with these type of typical cases. So. Yeah. The cool, one of the coolest I ever felt was there's a patient ICU, you know, traumas involved, neurosurgeons involved, everybody's involved. They call me in really complex laceration. The patient's intubated already in the ICU. So I just say, you know what? It's fine. I'm just going to get some stuff. I'm just going to fix it here. So I just bring all my stuff in, prep the patient. I'm sewing up this laceration. Neurosurgeon walks in and he says, you're doing this at the bedside? And he just watches me for a while. I was like, that's so amazing. That's badass. Look <laughs> at you go. And like the neurosurgeon complimenting me. I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm all, I'm all flutter, you know? So, so, you know, just that, that, just that little moment just made me feel like so good. It's just like, for me, it was just what I do. And for him, it's just something he doesn't get to see. And I, I love scrubbing in with other surgeons when I have a combined case of neurosurgery and I'm watching them do something. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is just amazing what you can do. Or the trauma surgeons, you know, going into the abdomen. I'm like, holy crap, look at all that stuff. <laughs> And to me, it's all just, I'm amazed by what everybody does. And so I love those combo cases because I just, I'm in awe of the skills and we all start at the same place. You know, we all go to medical school, we all do those same rotations and then residency, we start to kind of, even in med school, we start to differentiate a little bit. Then residencies, we all just branch out in these different fields and it's, it's amazing what all comes together. Yeah. Love it. And then yeah. 
What about you, Renee? What uh, what sparked the OB bug for you? Well, that was like the last thing I wanted to do. And I want <laughs> to just, you know, let you guys know that me gave you the polished version of his story. Very <laughs> polished. <laughs> because when he came into medical school, he was actually interested in OB. He was the OB club's first year representative babies don't follow an algorithm man <laughs> yeah exactly that. that probably threw a wrench in all that right exactly right. that was yeah. the monkey wrench so <laughs> had to put the babies by the wayside but for me ob was actually the last thing i wanted to do um i came in wanting to be a pediatrician and then you know as i was doing i think when i got into my second year of medical school I solidified that I wanted to be a pediatric endocrinologist. (laughs) I really liked endocrinology. And so I figured I like kids. I like endocrinology. I'll take care of their hormones. You know, (laughs) no big deal. And I actually did a third year elective in pediatric endocrinology. And I really, I really enjoyed it. It was ambulatory care. I really enjoyed it. But I also did a pediatric general pediatric rotation, which I absolutely hated. I hated this. Renee hates the kids. I didn't hate the kids. I didn't even hate the parents. You know how people go, oh no, it's not the kids, it's the parents. I'm like that was me. I don't know. That was Sam. Yeah. Yeah. The parents I was like, I don't even hate the parents. (laughs) I just hate the medicine of pediatrics. It was boring. You know, it was just like so wait, I have to go through three years of this before I get to endocrinology. I'm going to jump out the window. Like there's no <laughs> way that I can do this. And so I did my pediatric rotation. Um, I think it was in the wintertime, maybe around March or so. Decided I hated it. And I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't like anything else. And I hadn't done my OB rotation yet. It was the last rotation of my third year, which you know. Yep. Lunchtime. You probably should know what you want to do yeah. by the last rotation of your third year. And I go into OB just and I remember saying to him, I'm gonna hate this. I don't, you know, I don't want to be looking at that all day. I I'm I'm gonna hate this. I got to my OB rotation and we got onto labor and delivery, delivered the first baby. The father actually almost passed out. And, um, you know, he was obviously excited, but I was excited as well. And I was like, man, this is, this is kind of cool. So we do a, you know, a normal vaginal delivery first. Then we go in, do a C-section and I'm like, oh man, this is really cool. Then we leave the hospital. We go to the office. We do a ton of just well, you know, well women visits, OB visits, um, a few office procedures. And what I didn't realize at the time was one, the versatility within OB, but two, I also didn't realize how much I liked versatility and how much I liked using my hands. I thought I was going to be one of those doctors who just uses, you know, her brain, like, you know, I am and I guess family medicine to an extent as well. They kind of do some, you know, some procedures here and there. But I really thought it was going to be me basically, you know, just with the mental, mental mathing all the time and then coming to the patient and going, okay, you know, here's here's my thought. And that's kind of what pediatrics was 
for me as well. It was just like this mental mapping all the time, not much in terms of procedures. And I just, I hated it. I felt like I was dawdling, like I wasn't doing anything. It was just very boring to me. So that's how I landed on OB. Um, at one point, I thought maybe I would go into reproductive endocrinology. Um, but once I finished residency, I was like, that's enough training. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I had no choice but to do my fellowship because similar to you, so to roll back a little bit, I went to medical school for one purpose and one purpose only, to be a neurosurgeon. Mm. If you met me in high school, if you met me at any time in my life leading up to it, Dave was going to be a neurosurgeon. That was my one goal in life. So my neurosurgery rotation was near the end of third year so that I'd be the most polished, so I'd be ready to go. And all through third year, I just there's these little clues. I didn't like being in the hospital. I didn't like all the regular, like rounding up patients, patients, the ICU, inpatient medicine, the hierarchy of it all. Just none of that worked for me, but that was my goal. So head down, just plow ahead. You have a goal, don't deviate. And so I did my neurosurgery rotation. I'm getting my letters of recommendation. I'm getting my application together. And then just every moment of that rotation was like just people saying, you shouldn't do this, the chief of neurosurgery. It's like, you don't seem like the regular guy that does neurosurgery. The chief resident, dude, I don't know my kid. It's funny, we have kids the same age. Yeah, I never see my kid. I wish I could. Just all these things, like every little thing was telling me, this is not for you. But I just kept my head down and was going for it. And then I finished and I thought, I can't do it. (laughs) And then I had this identity crisis because Dave's a neurosurgeon. Before I was even a neurosurgeon, (laughs) mentally I was a neurosurgeon. Right. And so- I didn't even have a plan at the end of third year. At least you hit OB guy at the end of third year. And so I go into fourth year, applications are coming due, people need to know what they're doing, and I'm just lost floating. I'd had a goal for 14 years and it was just blown up. And then I'm like, I gotta do something. I, I still wanted to be a surgeon. So I was looking like ortho trauma, maybe ENT, but I had- I liked OB. Yeah, I liked OB. I, I love this, days. like same thing, like the variety, the surgery, all that mm-hmm. stuff, great stuff. But I had, maybe one rotation to pick and then it was time to apply. And so I said, well, what's the first thing that got you interested in medicine? So I went back to when I first decided to be a doctor, I was eight, I was going to be a surgeon and it was at eyes. I was in an eye clinic mm. and I thought there should be more doctors that fix eyes because I hated my glasses. I just went in there, they get put, put glasses on my head. I'm like, this is stupid. You should just do surgery and fix my eyeballs. Because <laughs> there was so, only one style of glasses when so, we went. Yeah. We were that age. Horrible. Just one. Big gold rims. You looked horrible. Just like, yep. You know, yep. I was already yep. a nerd. And then you throw the glasses on me. <laughs> oh, my brother's a big old jock. You know, now he's a bodybuilder. He's mm-hmm. humongous. And I'm just a little nerd. And then you throw these glasses on top of me. I'm like, oh, that's, that's my life. But that's the first moment I thought, I can be a surgeon. And so I'm like, okay, that's the first thing that sparked your love of medicine. Let's give that a try. So I did an ophthalmology rotation for the first rotation of fourth year. And it was an outpatient one because I was just going to give it a try. I wasn't going to do it at the academic center. Give it a try. And then I hated every minute of it. It was boring. (laughs) It was just like mind numbing, like giving people glasses, doing refractions, cataract surgery. I'm just falling asleep during the cataract surgery, even like seeing it for the first time. Like this is really boring. (laughs) And, you know, I think, I think I'm keeping this all to myself, but the, the ophthalmologist I'm working with just says like, you don't really seem to enjoy this. I'm like, dude, like a month ago, 
I was doing burr holes. You know, I'm in the OR, you know, like somebody's bleeding their brain. I'm like, drill. And I'm a third year medical student, but I had good hands as they trust me to do stuff. So I'm like drilling into skulls. I'm touching the brain. I'm like, yeah, cataract surgery is just not doing it for me, man. Right, right. And so he set me up with all the other specialties in ophthalmology. And just everyone was worse than the last glaucoma was horrendous. Retina surgery was horrible, like anterior segment stuff. I, I hated everyone. And so I'm like, well, now what? One more rotation you have to apply. What are you going to do? And then the last two days of that rotation, oculoplastics. Mm. We did a floor fracture repair. So this guy had a trauma, got punched in the face. We're repairing a fracture. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, this is bone stuff, little trauma. We did a cancer reconstruction from somebody that had like a basal cell on their eyelid, did a couple ptosis repairs. And then he tells me about when he's on call and he goes in, takes care of like zygomatical facial fractures, Lafort fractures, you know, all these like intricate surgeries, deep orbital tumors, optic nerve surgeries that are similar to like the neurosurgery. And then I do a clinic day with him and he's injecting some Botox and some filler and it's all just pleasant and happy. And I'm thinking... <laughs> This is your life. I'm like, this is cool. The variety, but the surgery and the hands-on. So those two days, I'm like, I'm doing it. And I'm like, but I have to do three years of ophthalmology. That's what I was about to ask. I like, you oh, that, right. that sounded horrible, but I was you like- felt it, like me and Pete. It just, it just hit. Was... Yeah, I was like, how am I going to survive three years of this? I'm like, well, you, you, if you want this, this is how you get there. And so I just made up my mind. I'm doing it. But ophthalmology, one, it's difficult to get into. And then oculoplastics, the match rate for the subspecialty is about 25% on average. So there's a one in four chance I'm getting the fellowship that I want even after all this. And so I'm just like, well, it's what I want to do. So I did three years of ophthalmology. I smiled my way through those cataract surgeries. I spun those little dials and gave people their little glasses. <laughs> but How, about only... How about now? How about now? Oh, that's, that's the worst. It was, it was rocky. And then... And then I had a, four months of oculoplastics in that. And then anytime I could, if they were like, they were short of resident or they needed something else, I'd step in. If I finished up early, I'd go do some oculoplastics and then got the fellowship that I really wanted, got to do what I wanted, but just two days, two days changed it all. Just that, you know, mm -hmm. one day and two days and I'd already given up on the specialty and I'm, I'm glad I stuck through it. But yeah, I did not like ophthalmology, which is funny because I'm an ophthalmologist. <laughs> Right, right, the right, pressure, right. The pressure of that match day to in fellowship was oh. <laughs> unreal. Was unreal yeah. more so life. than any. That's a different well, match, right? That's the, the fellowship was a different match. Yeah, like, and then even ophthalmology is its own special match on a different day, and it's an early match. So I already missed the deadlines when I switched from neurosurgery to do ophthalmology, mm. and so I missed the deadline, and I got an application out while people still had it open, but. Everybody had already made their choices. So that first year, I didn't match. And so I changed my whole life around, picked a career, and then was told, no, you don't have a spot. And so that was another identity crisis. That was another moment of what did I do? I should have just stuck with neurosurgery. You had good letters. People liked you. And now you have nothing. And I just said, yeah. well, I think I have good applications. So I applied again. But then I had a gap year. So I did research in pulmonary emboli with uh, like machine, you know, like some learning stuff where algorithms would help people in the ER make appropriate decisions on ordering CTAs. So it paid decent. <laughs> paid decent. Paid decent. And so, but you know, for a year, my whole future was just in flux. 
I don't know I what I'm going to do. That's one thing about medicine that <laughs> I think the, the general public has no clue about. And you is... did? Did you do a couples match? Oh no, no. no. Oh yeah, listen to the last episode. Okay, you should say y'all had a part, didn't you? But, <laughs> but but even that, like you guys were in a relationship and you had to just apply and hopefully get in. And I, I have a friend right now; he just finished medical school and he tried to do a couples match for two competitive fellowships, and they didn't get it. And so nobody wanted both of them at the same place. And so it was either you go someplace separate or one of you changes your career. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that part of medicine. I think the general public has no clue about there's several things. One, the lack of residency positions, um, particularly, particularly in subspecialty. And then if you don't match, I think a lot of people will be shocked to know how many doctors who are actually finished medical school don't have a place to train, to train at, um, not because they're not trainable, but because there's no, literally no place to train them um, because e, A, there is nothing available in their specialty or they just can't get into a spot. I think the, the people would be really shocked to find that out. And, you know, as you already know, in the surgical fields, it's just really difficult. You know, um, particularly when I was in training from 06 to 11, you know, like I had prelims in our program up until like year three, almost year four. And that is a very, I can imagine it's a very difficult time where you like on a yearly basis, you're not sure if you're going to be asked to come back. You're not sure where you're going to be. You're living your life literally six months, uh, you know, at a time. And it's, it's frustrating, mm -hmm. you know, where are you, are you going to rent? Are you going to get a house? You know, it's just like yeah. it, it, that part about mm -hmm. medicine, I don't like, and I'm, I, I'm shocked that it's still, ex or I'm not shocked, but I'm, I, it pisses me off that that stuff still exists particularly with medical schools opening up, but they haven't opened up the amount of residency exactly. spots mm -hmm. or training spots. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this huge bottleneck where the public sees that, okay, there is these new medical schools that are opening up, but the next phase of training for these students or residents is not there. And then, you know, but there's loan debt follows them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, so. And that interest is accruing. I had a friend of mine, he did three intern years to yeah. try to get in. He didn't advance at all. He just kept doing an intern year, another intern year. All the while, his student debt loan is just getting larger and larger. The interest mm -hmm. doesn't stop just because your career has been put on hold. So and he was so at the same place? Or he just kept going from place to place to place doing intern. He did uh, two places. The second place that he went to said, "If you do another one, we will reserve a spot for you the gotcha. next year." Yeah. So he did one, went to a different place, and then did two back-to-back -back intern years, mm -hmm. and then he actually did get into the program. Yeah, but that's that. three. That's two extra years of just interest accrual on right. hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and then all the length of the residencies. And then if you want to do a fellowship and it just accrues the whole time you're trying to finish up just to start making money. Yeah. And easy labor for the hospital too. Oh yeah. That's the other thing too. Like if you look at the hourly wage, we, we calculated once as interns, we were making on average like eight to $9 an hour. Mm -hmm. And that's not accounting for overtime. That's just straight numbers. Like if you hit 40, most places would be paying your time and a half. So it's like, right. no, Let's not even do that. Like it, my pure dollar, dollarly wage right now from the number of hours I work is about $8 an hour. Mm -hmm. I might be working 100 hours a week, but I'm getting on average about eight bucks an hour for every time I show up for a shift. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow after doing 
four years of college, four years of medical school, mm-hmm. being in the subspecialty training. I definitely after three years of things. internship. <laughs> it's just like, damn, how long yeah. am I going to keep doing this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's no guarantee at the end either. Right. There's yeah. no guarantee that you'll get the job you want. You'll get the career you want, that the specialty that you want to be in, that the fellowship that you want to do will take you. Like you said, it's a huge bottleneck, but they're, they're willing to train more and more medical students. Right. But they haven't increased. And even when they just recently took the MD programs and the DO programs, and they made them combined residencies. Mm-hmm. Some of those DO programs, residencies didn't qualify. Right. So actually there are fewer, med- really there's fewer residency spots in the last couple of years than there were even five years ago. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I feel, I feel bad, but uh, the thing is we keep telling people we need more doctors. Please go to medical school. We, we need more doctors. We need more people that are interested in doing this, but we haven't made the access to mm-hmm. medical school more affordable, more accessible closer to where people live and work. It's just like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's it. It's just a nope. There's not a good reason why. It's mm-hmm. just like, well, that's, you know, like we only take this Isn't many it? The government only will help subsidize these, you know, this many spots. So yeah. Mm-hmm. God bless anybody that goes through it because <laughs> it's not as straightforward as I thought it was going to mm-hmm. be. I thought like, oh, I want to be a doctor. And my parents said, cool, great. Work hard and get good grades. I'm like, good, I did that. And luckily, I was one of the people that got into medical school, but it's not a straightforward path as you think it's going to be. Right. Yeah. And now people are like, oh, you, you know, you signed up for this. It's like, no, you really don't know what you signed up for. <laughs> like, you really, right. you may have agreed to, like, oh, that sounds like a decent idea with the amount of knowledge you had at the time. But none mm-hmm. of us really know, you know, what we're actually getting into, which is, yeah. I think that's what y'all are trying to do. What we're trying to do is just open people's eyes and let them. Just go in with a little bit more power, I guess, knowledge yeah. and power. So, how do you survive that? How do you survive the stress of, because they, they tell, you know, like some of the things that lead to divorce are, you know, change of career, moving, financial, financial situation. Mm-hmm. And if you decide to train in medicine, you're going to move. You're going to have financial issues. You're going to have instability. There's going to be a lot of unknowns. It puts a lot of pressure on a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, that's one thing we want to focus on as well is how do we keep people happy? Because even yeah. some of the programs I looked at when I was still planning to do neurosurgery, there's a program that proudly told me that they had never had a relationship survive in the last 30 years. But, <laughs> nobody, nobody stayed married. But they tell you this because it's a badge of honor. Like, look how hard we work. Look at the dedication we have. And I'm like, I like my wife. Like, right. I, I love her, but I also like her. I want to keep her around. So I don't think I want to apply to your program because I don't want to come out the other end divorced. And they had a 100% divorce rate, or even if you showed up with a significant other, no relationships survived in the last 30 years. And I said, that's a bad selling point for what you're trying to do here. Oh so, my God. But it, it attracts a certain type of resident or a certain type yes. of doctor. But I'm trying that to culture, say- They've kept yeah. that culture because they've attracted that, that type yeah. of individual. But right. I'm, I'm trying to- we're trying to work on ways where, yeah, you can be dedicated. You can be an amazing doctor and you can also be happily married and have children. And well, and as a spouse, you don't have to give up your identity in the name of medicine because it's like both of you sacrifice yourself to this goal and you get lost because the, the, um, the goal of doctor kind of trumps whatever else it's just kind of more impressive than anything else. And I would tell Dave that I'm like, my day is never going to be as interesting as your day. 
like it's never going to be what people want to hear about. They don't want to hear about me working with, you know, clients who want to design that day or, you know, they're just not, it's not as impressive. So to, um, empower people. Cause the only advice you ever get is, Oh, you'll never see them. And it's like, well, I'm not an idiot. Like I'm going to be busy, but how do, how do you survive like multiple financial problems, multiple moves, multiple mm-hmm. disappointments in career. And also your spouse has no control over their schedule either. So how yeah. do you wrap your mind around all of that and have, you know, and still not take it out on this person that's living with you, (laughs) you know? So, and how do I take all that stress on my end and then show up and be a supportive husband and be a supportive father and not just come home grumpy and say, Hey, sorry, I just worked, you know, 30 hours straight. I'm going to be grumpy, eat and go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Like how do I still connect with the people that I love? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so important, you know, to show up as a whole person, you know, at home and at work, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, for me, you know, to have a program proudly say that essentially, you know, everybody has horrible relationships at home, you know, just says to me that, well, I don't know how your program then relates to patients. Because yeah. if you think that this is normal for yourself, you, you know, one of the things that I said to me when I guess they were critiquing uh, Rihanna and, you know, her partner and she was on a, on a magazine cover and she was out in front and he was behind her holding Mm -hmm. the baby and people were, you know, criticizing and I can't believe this. And, you know, they're, you know, emasculating him. And, and I said, you know, when people are dysfunctional, when they see functional things, they think it's dysfunctional. (laughs) Yeah. That's so true. You know, and so that's kind of, I wonder if that program, you know, can relate to patients and their families um, who may be coming in very functional and yeah, and their dysfunctional um, relationships with those residents or the doctors, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if those relationships with the doctor and the, and the patient are dysfunctional. Yeah. And, and that's a great point because whether we like it or not, we counsel people. We're not all psychologists, psychiatrists, but we counsel people. And if you don't understand that family is valuable to most people or their relationship is one of their top priorities, how can you sit and make decisions or tell them what you would recommend in a situation or end of life discussions when you don't have those connections with people. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think you can be a great doctor unless you're a great human. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think we've taken up a full hour of your time. So mm-hmm. I don't want to keep you late. And I know you're on the East Coast. Even so though it's... we're best friends now. <laughs> <laughs> Take up your time. Totally. It's, it's late where you are. And I, you have... You've got a, littles. You, and you have a lot on your plate with careers <laughs> and kids. So I appreciate you coming on, both of you. I love what you're doing. I'm working on the things that you're talking about as well. I've kept my head down for so many years just to push through it. And I'm mm-hmm. finally coming up and saying, oh, like I need to take control of my finances. They're not just going to just magically improve just because I make money. They don't just, right. yeah, the debt doesn't disappear just because money's coming in. It just keeps disappearing unless I grab it and force it to go where I want it to. Right. So I appreciate what you are doing and uh, I'll listen to 
your podcast and also your advice about just letting this kind of evolve to what it's supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And I'll figure yeah. out what that is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both for having us on the show. Yeah, we, we really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Definitely appreciate well, thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.